Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Faster Masters Rowing Radio, where having a rowing coach only makes you better. Following a program gives you a true pathway to becoming a confident rower who's respected by your peers. You can become the athlete you want to row with. I'm Rebecca Caro, and I'm joined by Marlene Royal. Hello, Rebecca, and hello to our Faster Masters Rowing audience. And I would like to send out a special hello to all of those Faster Masters who are racing at the U.S. Rowing Masters National Championships, which starts today in Sarasota, Florida. It does. Excellent. So best wishes to everybody for a great regatta, both on and off the water. Now, we want to kick off with uh, this past week where we talk about the things that we've been doing you know, more broadly to advocate for Masters Rowing. And a lot of you won't know this, but I have a LinkedIn program going where I'm reaching out to people who are rowers via the social media platform LinkedIn. And I'm asking them to give me ideas for one thing that would improve Masters Rowing. And I was blessed with having a wonderful conversation with a man called Charles Wemmis, who is based in New England and was a former lightweight rower and, and coach. And we have had such a good response to the work that I'm doing there. I have over 720 people who I have had individual dialogues with from around the world. And so if anybody has any ideas of one thing that would improve Masters Rowing, please send it over to us. Cool. Well, I had a very nice experience this week that I met one of our Faster Masters in person. And um, one of our Faster Masters, Tony, who lives in not far from me, about, you know, maybe 30, 40 minutes, who rose at the, the next club to my club, which is in Sherbrooke, Quebec, had a chance to come over Wednesday and um, I gave him a tour of our lake. And so it was quite nice meeting somebody in person who has corresponded with us and been doing our program for a couple of years. And he is has also done some coaching and he looks after all of the equipment at the rowing club in Sherbrooke. And, um, you know, it was a really, really pleasant experience and because where they row they row actually they row on a river that that has traffic and you know you have to pay attention to where you're going it's quite a nice place to row but um it was a new experience for him to come to a lake where we had so much space that we could just kind of row along and chat and <laughs> and um, we had a day with excellent water so um you know that was really nice to get to know one of our one of our faster masters who is you know a new local person for me as well yeah, it's just extremely pleasurable, isn't it? There's there's something that's like way bigger than the, you know, it sounds, hey, I met someone, but you meet someone and it feels from your heart like you're meeting a soulmate, you're meeting someone who kind of gets it, who understands what we're trying to do together as a global community of masters, which is to help more people become masters, but also help institutions like clubs and federations to provide a better environment for masters rowing. So I'm I'm jealous. <laughs> yes, it was quite well. And it's always nice when you have these email exchanges to connect a face 
than to the email exchange. That is true. Yeah. So our topic for the week is good stress, bad stress. Now, stress is a normal part of life. And I think a lot of my consciousness of what it is and how it affects different people at different times, we all have some greater awareness of it than perhaps I did even 10 years ago. But recognizing that some of our masters are regularly in stress situations, whether that's you're a learner and you're worried about flipping or you're choosing to race and you obviously have tension and anticipation and adrenaline flow before a big event or a time trial or an erg test. So Marlene, run us through what's the difference between good and bad stress? Well, I think in the broad, in the broad picture, if I think of good stress, a good stress is something that is going to help you grow, right? It's something that that's going to help you improve, something that's going to challenge you. Maybe sometimes it's, you know, it, it could be a, a competition or it could be trying a new boat. It could be getting into a new crew, could be something that's unfamiliar, that you know, is a little bit of stress, but at the same time, it's it's going to stimulate you to improve. It's going to to help you, you know, maybe go another step further than what you might have done. So, you know, good stress is pushing you in a positive, pushing you in a, in a positive direction. So, you know, it's, um, I think also having challenges that are appropriate because, an appropriate amount of challenge might make you a little nervous, which might be another word for just excitement at the same time to try something. Can I do it? Let's see how this goes. You know, and um, can I, you know, can I get into this boat or row with this crew? That's a little bit faster. Can I try to improve my ERG score a little bit? I think these are good stresses that um, keep your mindset positive versus something that's too much of a challenge that starts to cause breakdown. Give us an example. A bad stress? Yes. Um, I think, I think an example here, here's one classic example that comes to my mind um, that I experienced as, as an athlete when I was in university. Um, I was the, the stroke of the eight and our coach was, um, he was, he was a very competitive coach at that time. And, um, our team had won a major championship the year before. So he really was under pressure to try to repeat winning this big national championship the next year. But we had a different, obviously we had a different crew. We had a different crew, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but one of the things that I experienced being the stroke of the boat was the coach saying to me that you're responsible for the outcome of this race and just like putting it, putting it right on my head. And, you know, I felt that that was a bad stress because it, you know, it sort of made me feel responsible for what should be the responsibility of the entire crew. And, you know, instead of putting it into a context like, well, try to do this so the crew goes with you so that we try to you know do a b and c 
during the race. But instead, it was just like, this is your responsibility to win the race. And for me, that was a that was an example of a bad stress because then I'm I'm just worrying about, well, what what if we don't win this race? And that's not how you're supposed to row a race, right? You're supposed to, especially if you're the stroke of the boat, you're you're supposed to set the pace and and adjust the ratings and and the rhythm so that the boat the boat is rowing well and then you're going to perform at your best level but instead you're your folk you you have this feeling like oh somebody just put this great big concrete block on my head and i've got to carry that down the course so that's something that i interpreted as a bad stress i think um i think giving putting athletes or crews in situations that are just way over their head um, in terms of challenge, you know, uh, having, having an appropriate amount of challenge is really important in training and becoming a better athlete, but an inappropriate amount of challenge could be something like you are a relatively novice single sculler and you enter the championship single in the head of the Charles, okay? You enter a race that that is just a caliber that is considerably above your level. You know, that could, for some people, that could be a good stress. Like, I just want to go see how I can compare to these people, even if their skills aren't up to that level. But I think mm -hmm. for many people, if they were put into that situation, it would be overwhelming. And then that becomes, you know, that becomes a negative experience because they're just outclassed and, and it would be better if that they were in a, in a level of competition where they could, they had some contact with the field and they had some ability to challenge, you know, I think that would be more appropriate than somebody where in a race where everybody just rose away from you and you're left out by yourself, you know? So in competition wise, those are two different you know situations that I, I would compare that, you know, one event selection for a crew could be a very good stress and another poor choice could be a bad stress. I think you raise a really good point there in training in the context of learning something new or acquiring an Im or improving your rowing and sculling skills, putting yourself into a situation which is beyond your current capabilities should be something that we learn about and we learn to accommodate as part of our rowing life journey. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with that? Yes. But the thing that, so that is uncomfortable for many people, particularly adults who are learning, mainly because you've got to this age and stage in life and it's probably been a while since you've learned something new and that feeling of vulnerability um, and incompetence, you know, is can weigh very heavy on some people. Um, particularly I notice it when you put a beginner in a crew with some more experienced people, Frequently, they will come to me after and say, you know, thank you for that. It was a great outing. I learned so much. But, you know, I'm really conscious that I'm holding them back and and things like this. So I wonder how you frame that up if you're in an administrative position or a coaching position or a leadership position in a group. 
so that the group accepts some of those things as part of the way we do things around here. Yeah, well, I, I think as we've talked about before um, in club sessions, particularly in team boats, that you have certain sessions that the goal is to integrate new people. So the goal isn't to go have that boat do their racing pieces, getting ready for their championship. The goal is let's integrate new people. You scale the, the outing so that perhaps it's more based on drills. Perhaps it's more lower stroke rating. Um, because if you put somebody in the boat who simply doesn't have basic blade work skills, you know, it's going to be a very stressful experience for them um, versus somebody who has some, some basic skills and that they would be able to come up and they would be able to follow drills. And, and even sometimes um, inexperienced rowers don't have the knowledge yet of how to do drills. You have to teach them how to do drills. They just want to row straight, right? And then you have to teach them, well, this is how we do a pause drill or this is how we work on a particular exercise. But I do think you you should make the crew aware that this is part of the goal of the session today is we're integrating a couple of new people. So we want them to feel different rhythm of the boat. We want them to learn about that because then it doesn't become a frustrating experience for the experienced people as well. But but you have to, I think you have to be tactful and delicate <laughs> a little. I think a key thing at the end of those outings is to summarize so that the, the newcomer recognizes the situation they were in, how they performed, and then you can like provide closure for that level of stress by helping them to see that they made some progress and pretty much telling them that, you know, the outing's finished and basically that stress is over. It's gone. You know, did you learn from it? And then get them to realize that they're going to have to do that again over and over throughout their rowing career. And sometimes I will tell an anecdote from myself, you know, about when I'm getting into crews with people who are better than myself. And of course, they never believe you. <laughs> but but it's true. No, it, it is true. And and actually, even for an experienced, an experienced athlete, if you have then say you have the opportunity, like you row in an elite level crew. I mean, that that's pretty challenging. You know, you're like, oh, okay, well, I've got to be on my game. I've got to keep up with this. Am I going to be able to do this? Do I do I have the skills to do this? So um, you know, those types of things that that support improvement are good stresses. Training with incremental goals. I want to improve my ERG score, you know, one second per 500 meters. That's a good stress. Saying, okay, you need to improve this much in one month, which, or uh, say you need to improve your ERG scores 15 seconds in one month, which is for the for a trained person is relatively unrealistic for a a new person it might be realistic because they improve quickly at the beginning but you know you have to you, you don't want goals that defeat the person that you know you have to you have to schedule success along the way um and you know and then just keep raising the bar but you know raise the bar a little bit and if 
today, for example, I had an experience with an athlete in, and we put him in a more challenging boat, a, a more challenging balance situation. And it turned out it was a little bit too much. So it was quickly becoming a bad stress situation. And what we did was then we just, we had the opportunity, we changed boats and went back into a more stable boat and then continued to work on the skills that we were working on. But it was, it was a, a good call right in the beginning that, you know what, we, we're going to try this, but th this isn't going to be the day that we're going to be able to work on these skills. So let's go back. Let's just go back to a more stable boat and then work on these skills. And then we'll switch back at another time to that boat. So this is where instead of, we could have said, okay, let this scholar just be out in this situation for an hour. But I really didn't, I didn't want the scholar to be in that situation for an hour. So I said, okay, let's go in. We're going to take 10 minutes and we're going to switch boats and we're going to go back. And then, and then the rest of the outing turned out to be a successful outing because he was able to work on the blade work skills that we needed to work on. And having a situation that was just too challenging of a boat wasn't, you know, it wasn't productive. That's a great example. Now, the podcast this week is sponsored by the head of the Charles Training Programme. We know it's still August, but that means it's three months to train and get fit for your head racing season in the autumn. You may be doing local races or you may be heading out for a really big event overseas. Everybody needs a program designed for masters. Faster Masters Rowing has a specific head racing fall program included in our monthly subscription plans. Whether you're on the individual, the crew plan or the club plan. In it, you'll be gradually introduced to longer distance workouts and higher stroke rates. Each is customized to your individual strength and your fitness. Find out more at fastermastersrowing.com forward slash our hyphen courses and get ready now for your big day in the autumn. Now, dealing with stress is the other, the kind of flip side to, you know, experiencing it. We, I think, all know when we are feeling some form of pressure or stress on ourselves mentally or physically. Um, but dealing with stress in a general situation is where I want to start. And then we'll move on to how to deal with it in a rowing situation. I found a report in the New York Times which talked about stress mantras. Now, a mantra is basically something that you repeat over and over again as a means of helping your brain to process what's happening to you. Now, if you're meditating, you know, the mantra is about calming yourself down and getting into a relaxed meditative state as a mindfulness tool. But for stress, the mantras can be somewhat different. And the article suggested that there were three possible responses that you can individually try in response to stress. The first one is to do nothing, just let time pass. And I think there are certain stresses that this is a response that can be recommended. 
an example might be, you know, the death of a relative or a loved pet where you know it's hideous right now and you're really feeling it. But in time, your memories form and you begin to feel you can remember the positives and less of the pain of passing. Doesn't mean it's any um, less acute to you, but that you can handle it better. The second stress mantra is one that is the word saying to yourself, let it go. And the third one is a mantra, let it be. So quite similar, but they had somewhat different effects on the people who tried them. So we were joking that let it go is a bit like that song from Frozen, you know, that Elsa sings, which I bet uh, anyone who has kids knows, knows this inside out. Uh -huh. um, and I don't know, Marlene, how do you think you would respond if you were using let it go as a, a thing that you, you yourself taught, you, you know, in your head, you're saying to yourself, let it go, let it go. It probably depends on how your brain tries to trick you, um, because I think if 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 you tend to have a brain that that's going to perseverate on something and just get stuck on some idea and repeat, repeat, repeat something, then I think you have to say, OK, just let it go. Brain, I'm not I'm not listening to you. I'm just going to let this go. Kind of like this is part of your internal weather. Right. So if you have internal weather, it's going to come. But it, but it's going to pass, you know, just let it, let it go, let it, let it pass through and then it's gone. And it doesn't mean that you don't still have a sunny sky just because a cloud passes through, so to speak. Um, so, so I think letting it go might work better for some people who tend to get stuck on a certain thought and that starts to stress them out. You know, you have to move beyond that thought. I think the interesting thing about let it go, it's, um, I remember a time when we had a somewhat abusive taxi driver in London and, and my friend who I was traveling with, who was American, said to me, it's not your problem, you know, which is a particularly North American response to the situation. <laughs> Whereas I was like going, I wanted, you know, to pursue the argument with this guy who, never mind the detail, uh -huh. but I think it's not your problem is a kind of let it go response, isn't it? Yeah, like you you don't have to be responsible for this because I guess I guess you have to ask yourself, can you really do anything about it? You know, most of the time the answer is no. You know, if the answer is yes, well then that's a different situation, but if it's something out of your control, you know, I sort of look at it as you can perseverate on that idea which is stressing you out but you are spending your time on that. So do you, is this what you want to spend your time on? Because perhaps you might be spending the same five or 10 minutes on, on enjoying the moment where you are. So giving up your time to the stress is also taking away from the time that you have in the moment. And is that something that you want to give up, right? That's a good point, because I think that leads to the third mantra, which is the let it be mantra. So you are acknowledging it, but you are then making your conscious choice 
as you say in your example, to enjoy the rest of the moment rather than the stress-inducing frustration. Right, because because honestly, we're only if we're only living here in this moment and we're giving our attention to something that we have no control over and that it's upsetting us, it's also, you know, maybe you're having dinner with your friends and you're giving up, you're giving up that time you could be enjoying your friends or the time that you're enjoying out for your row. You know, and, and I think that's one of the interesting things with rowing is I always felt when I push off the dock, all that stuff stays on land. And and now I'm in my boat. And and that was always um, something I, I felt strongly about. And, and if, you know, if you were overstressed and you were taking your, when you're taking your problems into the boat, I think you've got to take a look at what's going on because I think it's a skill to learn to leave those problems, leave those stress factors on land when you're, when you're doing your practice. And, and even if it, you don't necessarily even have to be training, but I think giving yourself the mental space to enjoy what you're doing, which is going to help you cope better with stress that's the, the purpose of your row and your, your well-being and your healthy lifestyle. And if you're taking all that stress with you in the boat, you're not, a, you're not getting out of your row what you should be getting, which is good stress, <laughs> instead of, you know, you're bringing the bad stress in. So I think, you know, it's a skill to say, okay, I can leave that on shore for 60 minutes mm. and I'll deal with it when I come back. Because why give up, why give up that time in the boat? Why give up that that time that you're very precious about and out rowing and give that up to, Oh my God, I got to call the credit card company. You know, well, you'll call the credit card company when you come back in, when your boat's in the rack and it's sleeping and it's all wiped off, then you can go deal with that and take care of it. But I think it's a skill to learn how not to let that stress creep into your practices. And that's part of the mindfulness of it, I think as well. I vividly remember when I learned this lesson, I was on a train going to a formal event, a dinner in London, which was being hosted by a, an older relative of mine. And the train just stopped. Uh, it was outside a station. There was nothing being told us. We didn't know why it had stopped. And it was clearly, it got longer and longer. And of course, I'm looking at my watch anxiously. And of course, these were the days before mobile phones. And you're just reliant on what they guard or the train driver tells you and it took me a ridiculously long time to work this out but I'm confessing this you know as friends to all of our listeners and what I worked out was that I couldn't do anything about this I could stress all I liked but that was not going to make the train move right exactly and so that kind of let it be mantra wasn't actually what I was using at that time, but it helped me to analyze what's causing me to feel bad. Is this something that I can do something about or not? And then if there is something I can do something about, what am I going to do about it? Right, and right. as the train then started limping forwards toward a, a station, um, obviously the passengers talked to each other. And I realized that I could choose to get off at Hackney Down Station, which is some way out of central London, um, and some of us passengers all got off together and we all went together to get a taxi. And of course, I was wearing 
evening dress and we were talking to each other and one of them very generously said look we're all boredly going in the same direction let's all share a cab share the cost and you know we'll drop you off first because you have an event that starts at half past seven and which was so kind of them and in fact they were they could see I was a student and didn't have much money and they actually paid for me which was again very generous but that was something we could do something about. You could make a decision, do I sit on the train or do I get off and try and seek an alternative route? Um, and so that was my particular moment where I began to learn, calm down, let it be. You can't make this train go faster by worrying. Well, and that, that's true. And for, for example, in rowing in our competitions, the start is delayed. Okay, this is another, this is a very real situation in racing that the races get rescheduled, the start is delayed. This can cause a great amount of stress in somebody. Or you can just say, you know what, there's nothing I can do about it. So between now and the, you know, maybe it's going to be 20 minutes, maybe it's two hours, you know, how am I going to use this time? And because if you use this time being stressed out, you're going to be so stressed out, you're going to be exhausted by the time you get to the starting line. Instead, you can say, well, you know, do I need to get out of the heat? Can I go stretch? Can I have, do I need to have a snack? Um, you know, can we, you know, can we do two more practice starts before we wait? You know, so I think when there's a situation like that, where really, you just, there is nothing you can do about it. So look for, the opportunities, because again, this opportunity, perhaps you met somebody on the train who you ended up having a really good conversation with. You wouldn't have had that conversation if the train hadn't stopped. Um, you might not have had time to read a certain article while you were waiting and the train was start, which might have said, oh, wow, hmm, that's something I needed to know. You know, So there, there, there can be opportunities in those situations rather than giving it away to stress and just saying, oh, this isn't going the way it's supposed to go. Well, maybe it's giving you an opportunity to see something else. You know, things happen for reasons. So sometimes delays, sometimes delays can be protective, right? Think of those people who, gee, they missed, they missed the plane mm -hmm. and then something happens to the plane or they miss the train and something happens. And, you know, you just, you just never know why things are maybe guiding you some, some ways, but, um, but I think letting it go, especially when there's nothing you can do about it and just say, you know what, there's got to be a reason why this happened. And let's just trust that, you know, the universe knows what it's doing. So. so what we're talking about really is acquiring mental resilience skills. And I want to go back now to those three mantras. Do nothing, let it go and let it be. Three mantras. And Marlene, which one do you think was the most if effective at reducing stress in the people who used it? Oh, gosh, I really don't let it go. I don't know. I honestly don't know. So I'm going to give you the percentages. So this is from the New York Times article. Okay. Do nothing. The people who did nothing, 4% reported a reduction in stress. So, okay, for some people in some situations, doing nothing works. The let it go mantra, 24% of people who tried this 
reported a reduction in their stress. But the clear winner was the let it be mantra, where 45% hmm. of the people reported a reduction in stress. Interesting. That's a big difference. That's huge. I mean, it's more than statistically significant. Yeah, yeah. It's nearly double. And I had a little think about this. And this is not from the article. This is just my thoughts. But why do these three mantras have such a different impact? So do nothing is, I think, the easiest to analyze. Because this is basically passive denial. You're doing nothing. Yeah, and yeah. So and, and, and your brain doesn't want to do nothing, for example. Yeah. Your brain generally doesn't want to do nothing I think is a good point and so that is it's just luck or good fortune or something else comes up that distracts you that helps you get over that stress so I think that's passive denial the let it go is active denial I'm not doing anything about it I'm letting it go and I'm telling myself actively to do that mm-hmm and then, of course, the let it be, the sort of John Lennon song, <laughs> let it be, um, is a stoic acknowledgement. Mm -hmm. You recognize that it is there and you recognize that you have to deal with it. And the dealing with it gives you something to do. And I think human beings tend to want to do something rather than do nothing or to feel more in control. So I think that stoic acknowledgement of the let it be might be a reason why it's more effective. Well, I think I would agree with that because you you are doing your one is you're acknowledging it, whereas to deny something might leave that still you know scratching at your subconscious a little bit. But you're saying, well, okay, I see that this is here, and and it's it's just okay. It's going to be like that, you know, and. You, you've you've acknowledged it and then you've also made a decision what to do about it which is just to let it be which is different from saying I'm going to do nothing and then you know maybe you feel like well I'm doing nothing and I'm I'm running away from that instead of recognizing that well yes this situation exists and perhaps it's not my ideal but that's how it is right now so so to our listeners, if you get yourself in a stress situation this week, please tell us how it goes for you. Yeah, um, put, I would be put, very intrigued. Put, Everyone put who's in Sarasota. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And um, and when we were talking about good, good stress, bad stress, um, you know, there are daily stress factors that influence how you react to things in the boat. And, and your things like how much have you been training? Um, have you been doing too much competition? Have you been traveling a lot? You know, what's your home life like? What's your financial situation? Your job stress. These are other stressors that can build on you, that can create reactions when you're out rowing in the boat. So that's what I said, that things, you know, if there are certain things you can let it be and remain on shore so that you can maximize your row and get the benefit of your recovery of your and your health and your well-being and your peace of mind and feeling better after aerobic exercise, um, you know, go for it. <laughs> so. Thank you. That's a great reminder. And so to our listeners, if today you have heard something that's useful for you that you can put into practice in your own rowing, please consider 
paying to support this podcast. We encourage monthly donations, which start at $1. And to donate, go to fastermastersrowing.com forward slash podcast. And we will be extremely grateful for your energy, for your money. And that will help us to offset the costs that we have in running the podcast, but also an acknowledgement that Marlene and I bring up good things that we can you know, teach to the broader community. From one of our listeners. Yes, should I read out Irene's question? Do you want to read it out, Molly? Yes. This is from Irene, a faster master's rower who lives in Berlin. She said, Dear Rebecca, dear Marlene, thanks so much for your training program. I am just preparing the training for our Berlin head race, which is the first week of October, using your wonderful monthly programs. Thank you. I'm usually a 1K person and wondering about specific head racing skills. In your weekly podcast, could you maybe talk about how to best behave in an eight to support steering? Some curves are so tight, we need to dampen the power on the inside, but do we lean in a direction? Do we adapt our stroke length or something? And what about in longer curves? Where can we continue rowing at full power on both sides, but still want to support the cocks? How do we best do that? Or do we let her do her thing and just row? That would be really awesome. Thank you so much. Have a great day, Irene. Whoa, big question. <laughs> a lot of big, very big question. So often, yeah, definitely, definitely go for it. So my general view in an eight is that you should let the coxswain do what they think is, is needed. They are in charge of the steering. And they should give the direction of, you know, the response that's needed for this bend or, or whatever. Maybe there's an eddy, maybe, you know, so many things. Having said that, I'm going to recommend that crews acquire the skill to help the coxswain get around corners and manage the the need to turn more sharply than you know perhaps just the, the rudder steering um you know can deliver and the sort of things that i think irene's crew should practice are things like say you have a sharp bend that's going towards the stroke side have bow and three on bow side put their catches in earlier and have stroke and six row a lighter pressure so that instead of having you know four people versus four people you're doing it two and two at either end of the boat and so around the pivot point you can make a rotation i think a little more sharply one way to test this is to try when you're stationary 
say you're stopping and you're like turning the boat. Try turning the boat with just those end pairs backing and rowing on instead of getting the whole of one side, you know, versus the whole of the other side to do something. So I think that you can really affect the sort of turning moment and the pivoting of an eight with things like that. I also think that there's quite a lot that you can do with regards to a sharp turn with balance. Now, she talked about leaning into one side and, you know, typically a boat's like a bicycle. It tends to lean into a bend. Um, so, you know, if you study anyone cycling, they'll lean towards the inside of the corner. And However, boats don't row well when they are not balanced and perfectly horizontal. So another thing that I would recommend that Irene's crew try is as the coxswain starts to steer a bend, all of you put more lateral pressure into your oarlock. So that's your inside hand pushing sideways so that your button is pushed really hard against the gate. And see if you can keep the boat level as your coxswain steers because anytime an oar drags along the surface of the water during the recovery it's slowing your boat down so that's the second thing that i recommend trying as a control thing so that you can keep the boat horizontal while the coxswain steers the last thing that is you know for a really super tight corner. And I will say I haven't practiced this in an eight, but uh, Susanna and I used to do it a lot in doubles when we were racing. There was a particular course that had a really sharp bend um, and it it was definitely quicker to you know stay on the inside of the bend was what we would do was we would you know start by rowing with more pressure on one side than the other. That's kind of self-evident with those early catches that I described earlier. Then what we would do is if we needed a sharper turn, we would row only from the catch through to our legs being straight. So it's like a legs only stroke. So we didn't do the second half of the power draw. We didn't use our back. We didn't swing our back. We didn't use our arms. So we did lots of super short strokes, basically from the catch so that you got the maximum angle of the catch with the blade going into the water, which tends to produce a sideways push against the water initially until the oar comes round to being perpendicular with the side of the boat, which is basically a half slide. Um, so we could then bring the bow around more sharply. Now, I'm not quite sure how you would execute that in an eight because it's you need the whole crew to do it. Um, but I, I do think that that would be a worthwhile thing to try for that super sharp corner. Because if you could do that for like just two strokes and, you know, it might be that you have, you know, one side easy and the other side do two really sharp short strokes like that. And then everyone picks it up again. And that might be enough to bring the bow around really quickly. The key after that, of course, is to regain your rhythm and get back into, you know, your good pace. So there's three things to try.
I think one thing I might add to that in the aid, if, if you were um, where Rebecca was talking about making sure that you're, you're keeping that lateral contact into your oarlock so that you're keeping the boat, the riggers level is if you're on a long sweeping turn, you know, experiment with more pressure on the outside leg. That's another thing that you could, you could try to help the boat bank a little bit. Um, you know, again, as a crew, you just have to try, like if you ease off a little bit on the inside leg and put a little more pressure on the outside leg, that may help the coxswain turn. I, it certainly works in a single. Um, if you're on a long sweeping turn, it's not going to work if you need to make a, sh a sharp turn. Um, but if you're on a long sweeping turn, that that can help your boat bank around the turn. But it is something you should practice and see see what works best um, as a crew, because the important thing is that you all do it together and you know what you're going to do. So you know what to expect. For the coxswain, I suggest that you practice these things first without using the rudder wires. So get the boat going straight and it helps if you have, you know, something that you can measure by. So if you mark a point on the horizon from the cox's seat that you can see, which might be, you know, a tree or a house or something, and then do what Marlene said and have everybody, uh, you know, push harder on their right leg and try it for 10 strokes and see how much the boat turns. And then that gives you as a coxswain a sense of, you know, I can get an extra five degrees of turn with this tactic. And then you can then have everyone do the left leg and do it until they make the boat go back straight. And then you could try it with pressure. So, or try it with early catches. So have one side do super early catches, but everyone doing symmetrical pressure on their legs and get a sense as to which turns the boat most and you might find that actually that's all you need. You don't have to do this mm -hmm. sort of easing one side and doing complicated things like short strokes, which are really skillful things that need a lot of practice. And you've got plenty of time before October for the Berlin head, Irene. So um, please report back. Tell us how you go. So this has been Faster Masters Rowing Radio, the show dedicated to Masters athletes who want fun, fitness and confidence in their rowing. You can become a student of the sport by buying a Faster Masters Rowing Program subscription today at fastermastersrowing.com forward slash join. And do share this with your friends. Uh, we want to help as many people as we can enjoy their rowing more. Till next time. Bye bye.